Welcome to The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Britt Ray, PhD, a globally renowned expert on climate crisis dread, who's studying the link between mental health and the eco-crisis. Between her newsletter, aptly named Gen Dread, her broadcasting gigs, and her books, both published and soon to be, Britt is an authority on staying sane while facing the climate crisis. In this episode, we cover the intersection of feminism and climate issues. We discuss how the pandemic has effectively reprogrammed the DNA of our global consciousness. And we address how racial and health inequities have been amplified by the pandemic, revealing how broken our system truly is. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our sponsors. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandiesfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Brent, it's a pleasure welcoming you on The Brand is Female today. I'm, I'm really glad you're joining us. Thanks, Eva. It's really good to be here. And I'll start by asking you what I always ask my guests when we begin these conversations. Um, growing up as a little girl, did you already dream of becoming uh, a scientist or you know, doing something that'd be really relating to science? Or did you envision having a completely different career? And, and if so, I'm curious what that was. It's funny because when I was quite young, I hated science. I did not enjoy it in school. It was the class that I dreaded, um, didn't connect with my teachers over generally. I'm much more oriented myself towards English and um, basically hum humanities-based courses and ideas, but at the mm -hmm. elementary school level. And that all changed for me when I had a very effective and fun and relatable high school biology teacher who I admired probably a little bit too much. I think, you know, it was probably a crush as well as just <laughs> thinking that he brought the material alive in a way that I could really um, connect my own self to. I, I could, because of the way that he taught me, see that I actually had some talent for wrapping my head around it. And, um, you know, perhaps it was just about getting older and developing new interests, but it wasn't until I was in the last years of high school that I started to think, okay, perhaps an undergrad in biology would be something that makes sense for me, which I ended up doing. And um, in that time of my life, I, again, faced many challenges, didn't enjoy being in the lab, but did really enjoy the narratives of science and being out mm -hmm. in the field and these other kind of exploratory aspects where you get to be sensually engaged with the work, um, mm -hmm. you know, feeling it and breathing it and living it and learning it and, and putting that into these stories that are really captivating. And I was super inspired by David Attenborough and everything that mm -hmm. came out of the BBC Natural History and Filmmaking Unit. And that inspired me to take what was at the time my volunteer community radio show, uh, a trip hop music radio show, and then change it into a science documentary radio show. Um, the following year when I was 19 years old in at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, just mm -hmm. experimenting with, you know, okay, what would it mean to not think traditionally the way I'm being taught to engage with biology, you know, go on and become a molecular biologist or something like that, mm -hmm. but um, speak with researchers and then craft documentary from 
what their knowledge is. Perhaps I don't mm -hmm. want to make the science myself <laughs> come to life in that empirical way. Maybe I want to help others engage with it the way that I'm so inspired by David Attenborough. And so that really started me on this science media, science communication train, which has become my career. And I'm a very interdisciplinary creature. And um, it's allowed me to move between art and science while trying to craft stories and documentaries and, you know, radio and podcasts and, um, and the writing that I do. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, short answer is no, I didn't always know I wanted to go into science and still I'm not quote unquote in it. In, in science. Way. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm curious if there were any, and it, it's, it's interesting because you just mentioned two role models who were men. And one of my questions is, is right. for guests as always, were there any women who inspired you along the way? So was there a female presence or maybe a, you know, a, a woman's work who, uh, who inspired you and helped shape what you, uh, what you're doing now? I mean, there certainly were powerful um, conservation biology, evolutionary ecology professors who I had the pleasure of being in their courses who were women, who, you know, strong forces, really bright um, voices in the field who showed me those sparks of inspiration to stay close to biology, which is what mm -hmm. got me my start in all of this. So, yes. However, I would say the dominant forces, funnily enough, were these two men in terms of being those keels, plus my father, actually. So another male uh, <laughs> force in this matrix, which is, is bizarre to think about now because um, you're the first person to point that out to me. So <laughs> yeah, in that, in that sense, I mean, um, uh, there was no female icon in the biological space the way that there were these male icons. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, a as often happens with women, there's this kind of softer, undervalued labor that gets mm -hmm. put on them and they're not celebrated as much. And they're not these kind of pivotal uh, change makers necessarily in the trajectory of, you know, the grand hero story. And, um, you know, I'm sorry to say that I think that that actually also happened in my own trajectory, not for any reason that was intentional. But I think, you know, a lot of women um, are, are actually doing that hard labor the entire time that makes it sustainable, that keeps you on track, mm -hmm. that shows you why and in which ways you can foster um, something great for yourself here. Mm -hmm. And um, there were actually many of those women, but they were kind of minor roles teaching me along the way. Right, right. So they still played an, an instrumental role in, in, you know, helping shape who you are now and what, and what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, but when did it feel like, okay, this is what I'm meant to be doing and I feel like I've tapped into my purpose? Mm, there's a few moments of that that I can think of. Uh, well, actually, I used to live in Montreal like you. And mm -hmm. I remember very clearly this moment in class one day. I was doing this graduate diploma in communications at Concordia University. Mm -hmm. And I was auditing this PhD course in bio art, which was this very quizzical uh, undertaking. You know, here are all these critical artists that are taking um, tools from the lab, tissue culture engineering methods and cloning and things that are usually relayed only to medical science. And they're using mm -hmm. them to make artwork and engage with wow. the public about science and raise difficult, thorny, ethical questions about the impact of these kinds of technologies in our lives. And my mind was blown by this course taught by a wonderful professor and bioartist herself named Tani Duff. And I just remember turning to my friend in class one day and I said, I'm going to dedicate my life to this. This, I said it out loud. I was like, this is so fascinating, the intersection between 
science and art and philosophy and critical theory and intersectional feminism, you know, and like post-colonial discourse and all these things are intersecting in this really creative place that is not doing work in the way we're told we're supposed to. And it's being tactical, you know, it's appropriating um, technologies in order to turn turn them on their side and say something new about culture. And I just thought it was so generative and so fruitful. And from that point forward, you know, after that point, I went and did a master's at an art school. And then I went and later did a PhD in science communication. And the whole time I was making these radio projects about science and uh, its impact on society and also the societal threads that come into shape science to show that it's not actually the subjective practice. It's something that humans do that's riddled with our biases and subjectivities and our emotions. And um, I think it was, there was that hinge moment where I realized, wow, this is a place where I belong. And this is something that I um, need to know more about and also find my own footing and to be able to lead some aspect of. So, so there was that. Um, of course, now you mentioned I am doing climate change mental health work. And that is a major shift because really I, I did my PhD in science communication with a focus on synthetic biology. Synthetic biology being this very fertile uh, field that's emerging around um, making biology easy to engineer. And so that has a lot of really fascinating social and ethical questions with it too, because it's genetic engineering writ large. But right. um, after that completed, I had a profound emotional experience, which was I, well, my partner and I started talking about trying to get pregnant. And I was at the same time very deep into climate change research and conservation biology research and reading report after report from the World Bank and the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and, you know, World Health Organization, all these places about ecological futures and trajectories that we're on and the inadequate political action to safeguard the uh, safe climate. And, um, you know, the, the crux of being in this moment of not just knowing about these things intellectually, but starting to feel them very viscerally, because all of a sudden I was, I was going to be responsible or not for putting a kid in the situation of dealing with this future that is incredibly threatening. Um, that, that opened up a whole new avenue to my research because I was having this grief response that I wasn't expecting. Uh, uh, my anxiety levels were on high. You know, I was in that hapless bracket of professionals who are, you know, being a science writer who are just so uh, exposed to the data, much like climate scientists and activists, mm-hmm. that it takes an emotional toll on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, needed, I needed to source some information about how to handle these emotions. We now call it eco-anxiety. It's kind of exploded since then. This was in 2017 when I was wrapping up my PhD. Um, But, you know, we've seen Greta Thunberg and all these climate activists from the youth movements change the conversation and make make it much more about intergenerational and intersectional justice. And they talk very fiercely about the emotional toll on them as young people facing this future and um, how how you know gut-wrenching it is and rage-inducing it is so we've we've now um, developed a lot of great language and understanding around this that was kind of lacking at the time but I uh, I started just digging and realized quite quickly that there was a book in this there was a, a whole new field I could go into because indeed there'd been psychoanalysts and psychologists and therapists psychiatrists thinking about what climate and the wider ecological crisis does to put a burden on our mental health and to, to spread psychiatric damage in communities. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not only this form of vicarious trauma of worrying about potential losses 
or worrying about real disruptions that are taking place right now but aren't in your backyard. You just read about them in the news. Of course, we also have the, the direct trauma that comes in when you are in a wildfire or a hurricane or a prolonged drought, for example. And we also know that these mental health impacts affect our systems and our healthcare systems and our societies, and they can kind of erode the infrastructure of our our social and physical um, world. And so that was this clarifying moment for me that now I have a new research interest that it's no longer just synthetic biology. And, and mm -hmm. conveniently, I was wrapping up my PhD and I had an opportunity to focus on something new. And so that's really what started um, what has turned into a three-year research experience of um, writing this book that is mm -hmm. forthcoming that I'm still working on and starting my newsletter, Gen Dread, mm -hmm. which is a you know, weekly newsletter about staying sane and the climate crisis. So yeah, that, those would be my two moments I can think of. And, yeah, and, and those speak for themselves. Was there ever a point where you regretted this this choice of, of career and, and you're, you know, as you just explained, you're dealing with a tough subject and, you know, having access to all that data can be, as you shared, quite demoralizing. Was there ever a moment where you said, I wish I was just doing something else? Definitely. <laughs> it's really, it's, it can be very hard. It can be very heavy. Um, but the through line to my work has been, you know, to understand the psychological and socio-emotional burden that this crisis puts on people and how it differentially affects us. So that, that was a huge part of the investigation at first, just describing it and finding out all that has been done in the research world around this. And that was very, very difficult because it wasn't yet teaching me about what to, what the heck to do with these feelings. It was just right. describing them in more detail and drawing them to very reasonable causes that are, you know, it's appropriate to grieve and feel distress and anxiety and fear and existential dread and all that stuff when this data is verified, you know, mm -hmm. about, about the world. And so that was a very difficult time, I'd say. That was the first year of this research <laughs> because mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, I, I wasn't yet in the mode that I'm now in, which is about sourcing the strategies and tools and nourish, nourishing practices to hold you up and help fight burnout of containing all of that dark knowledge. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that we can do. And so I don't feel nearly as, um, desiring of leaving this space as I was back then because you know it's it's tempting to think like gosh most of like no one around me that I know is doing this work and feeling this way at the office like it's it's horrible to cry <laughs> when you're just at work doing research reading papers you know you don't want to be doing that it's exhausting you burn out um mm -hmm. compassion fatigue all these kinds of things and um but you know I, I eventually brought my barometer over to mm -hmm. the space that I needed in order to fight my own burnout and help me help others, which is, you know, source the resilience building tools. So, mm -hmm. which is what I think is needed. So I've stuck with it. <laughs> right. Well, and you've yeah. turned, you've turned a negative into a, a positive, which, you know, help, helps heal yourself in the process, I'm sure. Right. Um, you, I shared with you before we, we started the interview, I listened to another interview you gave uh, and using the, the, or referring to the anecdote of you presenting to a room full of energy industry uh, executives, I, I assume all males probably, or most mm -hmm. of them. And this brings me to the question, um, do you find as a, as a woman talking about climate change, talking about um just the, the eco-crisis in general, are, are you taken as seriously as your male colleagues? 
It's an interesting one. I, in the psychological, like socio-emotional space around climate change, I think I am taken as seriously. And it's a very mixed gender pool of who's in that area of inquiry. And so, yeah, I think there's, we understand that the binaries between masculine and feminine emotions, it's a false binary, right? But they're so ingrained in this Western culture that we have of, you know, masculine being rationalist and like forward thinking and action oriented mm -hmm. and, you know, anger led and all these things. Whereas the feminine is more intuitive and inward and introspective and ang anxious and, you know, hysterical or grief ridden or what have you. And of course, everyone has both masculine and feminine qualities and, and it works mm -hmm. across this divide. Um, but because a lot of my investigation is rooted in emotion and affect and mental health, there's a lot of openness towards the feminine. Mm. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that is, so it does, it, yeah. So I've been, you know, happy in that space in terms of not feeling like I'm being looked over. Mm -hmm. However, um, the anecdote that you raised was really interesting um, because that was to a, yes, a, a meeting of many, I think it was about 50 plus, predominantly men. I didn't speak to any woman on that call uh, of oil and gas and coal energy executives also working in some renewable resources, but it was this large Norwegian consortium having their annual general meetings with these energy execs. And I focused my talk on the psychological forces that have actually held us back as a society from addressing this climate crisis, even though we've had data for so many decades, we've had, you know, an incredible amount of knowledge and Senate hearings, everything, going back to the 70s, you know, with mm -hmm. explicit information that has not changed. We've had models that have told us exactly what track would be on. Indeed, we're on it. They've been predicting it correctly. And um, there's been a lot of perverse manipulation of the data um, seeded by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and here I was armed with, you know, internal memos from Exxon, for example, from the 1980s, talking about how they know that it's going to become catastrophic for at least a large fraction of the global population. And but then they went forward to plant fake experts and feed misinformation and disinformation in the public sphere and do whatever they needed to to protect their returns. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, just completely amoral behavior in a, a corporate greed neoliberal setting that has robbed you know um so much from so many and millions of people are going to die as a result and are already dying <laughs> you know it's straight up crime and in this sense uh i did not hide anything i, I brought all the references and you know did not try to butter it up for them and it was very awkward um, also talking about some more deep psychoanalytic thinking from, uh, you know, experts in that space who have really articulated um, very well how our minds strip us up, these unconscious forces that hold us back from really confronting reality when it's intolerable, when it's painful, because we all need to lie to ourselves a little bit to get by. And we always had, you know, it's been, it's been an adaptation to allow yeah. humans to thrive in, in dark times because we've been through so many. Mm -hmm. and survive right and keep we, we are hopeful animals in that way and we have an impressive cadre of unconscious defenses that can pop up and split reality off from our 
every day and allow us to do things that are, you know, perhaps not rational. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, you know, disavowal is a state that many of us live in around the climate crisis. It's not that we deny it, but we kind of close one eye to the truth and keep the other one open mm-hmm. um, in order to say, yes, it's so terrible. And, oh, yes, someone ought to solve it. And, you know, we believe someone will because humans are, you know, adaptive and we, we will not just sit by and do nothing, but then we don't take the actions that are needed to actually have a full collective societal response to to address this existential threat, which is, you know, a larger challenge than humanity's ever had to face in terms of what it requires from us, you know, changing our politics, changing our economy, changing the way we relate to one another, you know, um, and then we close our eye in order to do what we want to do and hop on the next plane or what have you. And so, um, you know, we discussed all this stuff. Well, I, I presented all this stuff, but at the end, um, when it was time for Q&A, it was just crickets, complete silence. No one had a question. It felt like pulling teeth. It was extremely uncomfortable. I could feel my skin writhing. Here was a room full of, you know, 50 people with their eyes on me, but not saying anything. So then I tried to mm-hmm. fish to get things out of them. And eventually one man said, this is very emotional for us to hear about all the terrible things that we do. I was like, oh, wow, that's really, okay, great. Like not a defensive reaction. This is landing, even though that's a, you know, I don't mean to be bringing up such difficult emotions, but that's the reality we're in. It's a difficult, awful situation. And your industry has been complicit and continues to be. So we need to talk about that. (laughs) Um, And that's why, that's why you were in the room. Yeah. Which I was amazed that they invited me, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Like so impressed that they did, Mm -hmm. but Anywho, and then we um, went on and, and then another guy said, you know, I think I'm of the age that I will die of old age, but that's not necessarily the same for my children who could die of climate change. And so, you know, it was getting to that dire situation very quickly. And um, and yet I tried to engage and open that conversation up more and have people come in and, and add to it, but no one would. And then the organizer just said, okay, I think we're going to end now and meeting adjourned and then just cut the call. And, and I was sitting there with that feeling in my body of like, Oh God, that was, was that completely terrible or was that good? You know, very, very tense. And, um, and then I later got an email from a couple more people who were in there saying that, you know, it had just been very heavy for them and uh, stirred up a lot of emotions, but it was, it was good. And, um, you know, one guy talked about the Armageddon kind of feeling he gets whenever he thinks about this. And, you know, you're, you're just so deeply intertwined in it. Perhaps you've spent your career in it and, um, you know, it feels impossible to know how to extricate yourself or change the system from the inside. And I understand that it's all completely messy. <laughs> um, but I was happy at least to have some reactions and yes. some opening up about the, the difficult feelings that they have genuinely because you we never hear that from these guys mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. you know they either say no comment or they have basically seeded this information denial. so i was really pleased this season of the Bren is female is made possible with the support of td bank group women entrepreneurs confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections tools and resources As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. 
What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners who can provide education, financing, mentorship, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. Are women being called to play a specific role when it comes to, I don't know if we can talk about reversing the eco-crisis or you know, addressing some of the challenges tied to the eco-crisis. Um, you know, it's been it's been shown that providing funding to women entrepreneurs, for example, especially in um, in developing countries, uh, helps you know helps reinforce or helps with uh, environment conservation as opposed to supporting uh, entrepreneurs or male entrepreneurs, I should say. So is and and I'm interested in the intersection between. Um, and these might be two completely separate questions, but intersection between uh, feminism and uh, environment conservation. So if we if we tackle kind of the role that women play first, I'd be interested to hear your take on that. It's a great question. Absolutely. We know that the harmful impacts of the climate crisis disproportionately affect women. They're hit hardest and first and made vulnerable in terms of, you know, their mental health and their physical health. But we also know that supporting women directly does have a conservation effect in the sense that where women have their reproductive autonomy curtailed Mm -hmm. and do not have great environmental, um, excuse me, educational prospects offered to them, are forced into work at young ages, for example, they tend to lead lives in which they have many children. And this has, of course, been the main impact on population growth in terms of just like fertility, which is not all of the women, two people, of course, but um, the way that it gets discussed in these kinds of climate conversations is to move away from the very dark history that the environmental movement has had when it's preoccupied itself with fertility. Mm -hmm. It's often been wealthy nations, predominantly white people saying, we're too many people in the world, you know, and pointing fingers at places that are predominantly filled with black and brown bodies that Mm -hmm. have higher fertility rates saying, oh, this is dangerous, Uh, you know, human consumption because there's so many of us uh, affecting the world is is what's um, leading to this kind of destroying of the commons and going beyond Earth's natural boundaries or physical limits for the human enterprise. But of course, in many of those countries, the consumption is not equal to that of their own countries or not even a fraction of it. And there's been, you know, a lot of work done to show the, the racist, exploitative, you know, um, global North kind of damaging rhetoric that has, that has happened here and that has promulgated Mm -hmm ideas of overpopulation being the the menace when in in fact it's, you know, wealthy uh, elites and wealthy nations who overconsume that do most of the extraction and suppress and, you know, kind of live in a parasitic way on the rest of the population, the benefit of the few at the consequence and detriment of the many. And so moving away from that mode of thinking about overpopulation and fertility in the environmental movement today looks like empowering young women and girls to have education, to have good work 
prospects because naturally when they do, they choose to have fewer children. It is what happens in population after population when you look at the demographics. Opportunity breeds self-investment, you know, and meaningful work and um, busy lives spent doing things other than having kids and being, you know, perhaps held back by family expectation or patriarchal control. And mm -hmm. so it has the positive effect of reducing how many we are in general mm -hmm. in a way that is not coercive, mm -hmm. you know, in a way that is just allowing whatever naturally happens when women are empowered. Right. And so there is an explicit um, feminist impact, you know, that intersects between demography population and women's empowerment, which has um, been taken up by feminist climate advocates and feminist environmentalists. Right. Because it's, you know, we have a, we have the specter of population control also to think about in terms of Chinese um, one child pop policy, the, um, the moment in, I believe it was 1970s in India during the, when Indira Gandhi was leader that there were forced sterilizations and abortions mm -hmm. of many people as they were, they were just rounded up without their consent mm -hmm. and their fertility was taken from them. Sometimes women were forced to go home um, without their fetuses, even though they were close to giving birth, you know, horrific things mm -hmm. that were allowed and promoted by this largely Western rhetoric of overpopulation being bad for the planet, and bad for the future. Mm -hmm. And therefore we have to curtail the rights of people to do that. You know, in Canada, even, up until very recently, and perhaps still sometimes ongoingly, Indigenous women have been uh, similarly sterilized, you know, mm. against their knowledge when in hospital settings, and there's many more cases around the world. And so, you know, this is something that is atrocious and obviously amoral, and the way in which the environmental movement likes to think about solutions is women's empowerment, which then means no coercion is ever, you know, a necessary, not that it ever should be necessary, but it's just a, it's a moot point because the natural result is empowered women have fewer children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I want to bring up, given the period that we're in and what we've been experiencing these past few months, you've used the term ecological grief. Uh, around that uh, that experience of um, of loss that we feel with um, you know environment catastrophes, and we now know that uh, it's 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 been proven that we're also experiencing grief as a result of um, of the entire COVID experience. But um, we are seeing a rise in what I call global consciousness with consumers being you know more attuned uh, to. Uh, you know, the impact of their choices and, and for all of us when we're, when we're consuming a certain thing or um, being even the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, that movement for social justice and equality. Um, do you think that is going to last? Do you think there's going to be prolonged, you know, uh, effects from that, from that change in our mindset and the conversations we're having? Or do you think if we go back to normal in a few months, whether it's through a vaccine or uh, as the as the virus uh, dies down, that we're just going to go back to what the way things were before. I do believe it is a sea change moment, and it's a movement of months, which are reprogramming 
the DNA of our social consciousness, our, of our awareness of the brittleness and fragility of our systems, of how they are not set up to benefit people <laughs> in general, only a few. I mean, when we look at the intersections of oppression that occur in the healthcare space, you know, in the climate space, we see with COVID, you know, it's predominantly been poor people and people of color who have been paying the price of this pandemic with their lives who have been treated as relatively disposable mm -hmm. um, by, you know, the system in which, for example, in the United States has, through the history of redlining, put predominantly Black communities next to polluting chemical plants, mm -hmm. where people therefore have higher propensity for asthma. That means that you're more vulnerable in a pandemic that attacks the lungs right. or, you know, poor people and um, immigrants uh, are more likely to work in these factory settings and be, you know, necessary workers that have to go to work and can't afford to stay home and just Zoom all day in order to get their paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so these are the kinds of issues that point out the environmental racism uh, and the in environmental injustice that also make the climate crisis much worse for certain groups. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a radicalization, I think, of the heart and soul for many people which was already happening before the pandemic, but increasingly so, you know, I think it's not coincidental that things like Me Too and Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and the pandemic and the climate crisis are all teaching us things where we can really sense these overlaps. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, we live in a complex system of many intersecting smaller, very complex systems mm -hmm. and things within complex systems don't change linearly, they change disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we rush very quickly towards tipping points or vertices in which things can happen quite quickly. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, these these pressures and, and chaotic moments and traumas are, are at least achieving a more, con a, a, a foundational level from which we can make more convincing arguments about why our systems need to change. You know, they, we need to work to protect people and the planet, not profit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it will affect our healthcare systems. It would, it will deeply affect whether or not we have another pandemic like this in the future, as well as how we can safeguard the most vulnerable communities for the climate crisis ahead. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm hopeful. I think that you know, the climate movement was doing so incredibly well in terms of its demonstrations, millions in the streets all over the world before it became, you know, unsafe to go out and be with many people in the streets. Right. And although the Black Lives Matter movement and its supporters have protested very well in terms of having masks on and being safe, generally that pan the pandemic lockdown and social distancing measures have made it so that there are no longer those huge demonstrations in the street for mm -hmm. climate. But once it becomes safe to do so, I know, you know, the youth activists who have been leading the sea change have been toiling away busily, getting ready to resurge. And everyone is very aware that this is the decade. This is the decade we have in order to change things in a, in a very deep way, manifest a new world in which we can protect more and prevent um, increasing losses that will otherwise happen. And so people are determined. And the, the pandemic just points out why it's needed all the more. So I am hopeful about, I understand why you don't want to use the word silver lining. Um, and, you know, I agree it's insulting to those of people who are losing people and that who they love and, and their own lives and health. There are teachable moments from this that yeah. are transformational. It's some yeah. kind of portal 
you know, <laughs> feels yeah. like we're going through some kind of very uncomfortable portal. Yeah, and, exactly. It's yeah. allowing it's allowing that shift. So in, yeah. in that sense, there is a positive among this, uh, you know, otherwise very negative event. Exactly. And my my favorite question to ask guests on the show is, and I I'm, I can't wait for your answer specifically. <laughs> what do you wish women would do more of? I wish women would not doubt themselves. I wish they would believe fully in themselves and charge forth with all audacity, <laughs> you know, and take up space mm -hmm. and inject their worthiness into every opportunity. You know, I think that we still are holding ourselves back from ideas of smallness, you know, mm -hmm. ideas of people pleasing, mm -hmm. ideas of not wanting to be a bitch, ideas of, um, you know, restraint in order to be desirable. Mm -hmm. All these things are still very much part of a feminine sociocultural upbringing. And then you see these um, in many cases, like not, not too sharp men just mm -hmm. going for opportunities yeah. and injecting themselves and taking up space and taking advantage of systems that could also just benefit women similarly if we were, um, you know, not holding ourselves back with the self-talk or the questioning yeah. or the, the minimizing forces that are so natural. So, I mean, I think I, I'm very excited about how younger generations are increasingly feminist and queer and mm -hmm. um you know gender queer and just understanding that all that stuff is bs and they don't need to take it on so i think that we're we're going into the right direction as it is but um you know many of us still have these battles within ourselves regularly and um when i think about my own life something that would have saved me a lot of time is to not have that little dance in my head of self-doubt Mm -hmm. Just go do it. Yeah. Just go do it and have a thick enough skin that if you fall and it's a little bit embarrassing, it's fine. And mm -hmm. then you're on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. That Yes. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And that's, that's probably the best wish for, for women. And what is something that you're trying to do more of that you're working on? I'm trying to get into the deepest parts of my spirituality as a non-religious person okay and learn how to tap into that to feed my work and find deeper purpose in how i spend my waking hours on this earth <laughs> so um that sounded a little bit heavy i don't know how to do that but i'm trying to do that by assembling various inputs, um, you know, looking to various kinds of teachers and writings. And, um, you know, I think we're all on these journeys of self-development throughout life. And I feel like this is a time for me to get sharper on these things that I've uh, otherwise not been exploring so deeply. But I think it's really important with respect to, um, you know, any kind of activism work, any kind of uh, profession that's trying to change culture, because it's a it's an exhausting process <laughs> and we get sourced by tapping into the deepest reasons for why we do it. You know, the spiritually moving and the, the mattering parts. So yeah, that's my project. Well, 
best of luck with that one. And <laughs> as being, I mean, I can't wait to see, see the outcome because it seems that when you tackle a subject, you, you tend to go deep. Uh, so I can't wait to see what that brings on the, on the virtual <laughs> side. And thank you for, for everything that you do. We'll follow um, what comes next, including the, the new book launch. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. My pleasure. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brand is Female. You got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a week with a new guest.